going to preach to us today, our strength, our song, hallelujah, praise God. And time, as everything is the essence of time, time seems to be passing by us faster and faster with each passing day. And even though that we get 24 hours each day, it definitely doesn't seem that way a lot. Can I get an amen? We get 24 hours and that adds up to 168 hours a week and roughly 744 hours a month and 8,928 hours a year. And there still isn't enough time to get the things done that we need to get done. And most of us, most of us, if we're lucky, we get to work only 40 hours a week. And the rest of us either work less than that part-time or we get the distinct honor of getting to work more than that. Whether we like it or not, sometimes we have to do work more than the norm. And it doesn't seem to matter how we plan to use the remaining. If we work 40 hours, we have a remaining about 128 hours a week after working. No matter what we do, no matter how meticulously we plan, there just does not seem to be enough time. At least that's how it appears to me. There just doesn't seem to be enough time. And honestly, it is... It is quite discouraging to think about because I don't know about you, but I work hard and I'm sure the rest of you do. We work hard providing for our families and we sacrifice and we devote time like we are this morning to the things of God and to be in the house of God and to even build up his kingdom in this city. And yet there is that clock on the wall or on your wrist or on your phone or on your tablet, whatever it is, that is always ticking and it's always annoyingly reminding you that you're late to start an activity that you should have started a half hour ago. It's always moving. And it, you see, it's no coincidence that this is happening today because this is biblical, that there doesn't seem to be enough time. Time is drawing shorter. They're whisking away. And you see, Satan also knows that his time is limited. With each tick of the clock today and in the ensuing seconds and minutes and hours and days and weeks and months and years, he knows that he is one step closer to his ultimate defeat. And he knows that there is no way to stop it. He knows that there is no way to stop it. And like you and me, he knows exactly what the back of this book says. He knows just as well as you do, as God does, as your pastor knows what the book of Revelation says about what's going to happen to him. He knows it well, probably better than a lot of people do. And he knows exactly what is going to happen to him. And he knows something that everyone under the sound of my voice knows. And if you don't know it yet, you're getting ready to find out. And that is one very simple thing, that God and his church are going to be triumphant. We shall be victorious. God is going to come out on top. And that is the end of the story. He will come out on top. And you know, Maybe, just maybe, Satan, he's been able to get a few people to backslide here and there, and maybe he's been successful in getting this church here, that church there, to fall into the quicksand that is the non-denominal and emergent movements. Maybe he's been able to do that. But I say again emphatically that God and his church are going to be triumphant. Yeah. Praise God. If you believe that, would you clap your hands? Yeah. 
We will be victorious through Jesus Christ. Praise God. Praise God. So Satan, with this knowledge, with this knowledge, he is trying to soften the blow, if you will. He's trying to make the best of a bad situation. He cannot escape defeat because it is assured to him. We have assured victory. He has assured defeat. He is going to try and make it the best situation possible for himself. His strategy is quite simple. And that is this, to make the church fight for every single minute that it has. Make the church and the saints of God fight for every minute that there is to work for God's kingdom and to build it up. Because, you see, if he can stop one door from being knocked on, if he can stop one flyer from being passed out, if he can stop one program from going forward, if he can stop one sermon from being preached, quite simply, that is one less soul that is going to hear the life-changing message of the gospel. And he will make it hard for us to carve out time to do this. He'll make it very hard to where it seems almost impossible sometimes. Because his ultimate goal of all this, was he, because he knows he cannot stop the message, it will go forward somehow, some way. He knows he can't stop it. But he's figured it out that if he can make us grow weary enough, if he can make us grow weary in our well-doing enough, just maybe people will not get reached that should have been reached. Paul put it this way in the book of Galatians in the sixth chapter. He said, and let us not grow weary while doing good. This is the New King James Version. Let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. You see, the King James Version, we're more familiar with this. It's on the board. It finishes the verse this way. It says, if we faint not. You see, Paul is trying to tell the Galatians something, and he's trying to tell you and me something here today in 2018, that sometimes it's going to seem like an uphill climb. Shocker, I know. Some of us probably have been on an incline for a number of years, it seems. But it's going to be an uphill climb sometimes, and it's not always going to be you walking around with your head in the clouds, and you begin your prayers with, well, since I'm in the throne room, God, since I'm here, you know, I don't walk around with my head in the third or fourth heaven, whatever it is, most of the time. I live in the real world, and I have struggles, and I have people that aggravate me sometimes. And so I'm not always right in tune, in line with my mind, just able to go to that place, that secret place so immediately. So that's going to happen. Paul tells us that's going to happen. That's humanity. That's going to happen to us sometimes. Paul tells us that there is going to be the temptation to grow weary and to become faint, for us to get frustrated even and get angry in our work for the Lord. So if you're feeling any of those things, don't worry. You're not abnormal. You're not feeling things that you shouldn't be feeling because Paul says that's going to happen. Because he wouldn't tell us let's not grow weary in our well-doing if there's not going to be the possibility to become weary. So don't worry about that. Don't feel like you're any less of a person if you've got any of those feelings that I've just described. He's, he tells us not to grow weary, and he doesn't leave us with just an empty command. I'm glad Paul doesn't do that. He never seems to do that. He gives complete thoughts, and he's a complete 
theologian, a complete sermon prep. Definitely a great model to go by. But he tells us exactly why we cannot afford to grow faint and to grow weary in our work for the Lord. It's quite simply this, because he says, there's coming a day. I don't know when it is, because he doesn't tell us. That day's different for everybody else, but he says, in due season, we shall reap. So don't grow weary in what you're doing, Galatian church. Don't grow weary in what you're doing, church in Sparta, because in due season, we shall reap. We will reap. If you just keep working And I know it doesn't look like anything that you might be doing right now might be working. You might be thinking that. And I know it doesn't look like you've had anyone take you up on that home Bible study. You know, you really want to teach a home Bible study, but nobody seems to be taking you up on the offer. And that co-worker just doesn't seem to hear it when you talk about the things of God. But I tell you, just like Paul did, do not grow weary, faint not, because in due season you are going to reap. Can I get a witness on that, if you believe that? I'm telling you, if you want to teach that home Bible study, you're going to teach that home Bible study. If you want to win your co-workers to the Lord, you're going to win your co-workers to the Lord. If you just continue to do what you know to do and continue to work for the kingdom of God, you shall reap. It is promised in the word of God. Praise God. Praise God. Just don't give up. It will happen. And you might be saying, well, preacher, or Paul, if you're reading it, that's all well and good for you. You know, mister had a vision from God getting blinded, you know, the greatest apostle that there ever was. But, you know, it's 2018, and I'm me, and I need help right now in my situation. So with that in mind, I'll tell you one simple thing that you got to have to get through for the temptation of the weariness, because we all get weary, we all get tired. But here's what you need to get through it. We all need the joy of the Lord in our lives. We absolutely must have the joy of the Lord. Because you see, in the Old Testament, we find a book that articulates this perfectly, this idea of us needing the joy. And it's also a familiar scripture to us. And we quote it quite often, and it's found in the book of Nehemiah, the 8th chapter and the 10th verse, and we'll get to the rest of it later. But it finishes with this, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Quite simply, the joy of the Lord is our strength. And Nehemiah, perhaps like no one else that I can think of in the Bible, embodied this phrase. After all, he said it. So he was the very embodiment of it. And if you're not familiar with Nehemiah, I'll give you a short summary of it. Sorry if I bore you with the history lesson, but just real quickly humor me. Nehemiah had the distinct honor or dishonor, whatever way you want to look at it, as the Persian king Artaxerxes' cupbearer, which means on a good day, you got to taste that ribeye when it got brought to the king. On the bad day... You got to taste the ribeye that was poisoned, and you got to die instead of the king. But you see, this was a place of distinction. This was not a position that they'd give to anybody just haphazardly. This was a position of trust. Because after all, the cupbearer himself, if he was sneaky enough, he could poison the king. 
Well, it tastes good to me, king. Here you go. Takes a drink, takes a bite. Ooh, he's gone. I don't know what happened. I ate it. I'm f I was fine. So it was a place of great honor and great distinction. And see, the book begins with Nehemiah learning that the walls in Jerusalem are completely broken down and complete disrepair. And the Bible even says in chapter 1 and verse 2 that the people of Jerusalem that remained there, that were not exiled, they are, quote, in great affliction. And it says that even the walls are in such disrepair and falling apart so much that even a little fox could break down the wall. I don't know about you, but that's not holding back an army. It's just not going to happen. So those walls aren't providing much protection for the people of Jerusalem. And this revelation, when Nehemiah hears of it, it disturbs him to his very core, and he even goes in to mourning. It changes his entire countenance when he hears of his homeland, when he hears of his people that are suffering such great affliction. And it affects him to the point and changes him enough to where the king, Artaxerxes himself, asks Nehemiah what his problem is. Could you imagine that? You're going about your business and the boss man, hey, what's your problem? I didn't say anything about it. So you, He must have been pretty upset. Nobody likes to get singled out when they're going through something privately when it manifests itself on the outside. But Nehemiah, he's forthcoming, and he tells Artaxerxes exactly what the case is. He tells him the news from home, and he even requests to take a sabbatical from his duties as cupbearer in order to go to Jerusalem and rebuild this wall. And, of course, God has given favor to Nehemiah, and the king granted his request, and even better, he agreed to flip the bill for it. I like that when somebody else tells me, go ahead and do what you're planning on, and I'll even pay for it. Praise God for that. I think it's biblical. Absolutely. <laughs> God gave favor to it. So he says, I'll pay for it. Go. I'll provide all the materials you need. Don't worry about it. So Nehemiah, he goes to Jerusalem, and he miraculously builds this wall in 52 days. That's a miracle by biblical standards. And I would venture to say that's even a miracle by today's standards feel like we can't get anything done in less than six months time building wise and although the facts that I've just given you that's not the entire synopsis those are the highlights of the book that's noteworthy that's awesome there's several miracles just in that little bit that I've told you but it's the rest of the book of Nehemiah or the rest of the story for you Paul Harvey fans that gets Nehemiah his place in our Bible and wins him the distinction of getting preached about in our service today. Because you see, Nehemiah, like perhaps like no other, he was faced with challenges that made it appealing for him. Hear me. It was tempting for Nehemiah, this great man in your Bible that you read about, a hero to us today. He had the temptation himself to grow weary in his well-doing and to become faint and to even stop the work that God had called him to do. So once again, I tell you, it is completely natural to have those feelings. Please do not dog yourself about it. Don't get down on yourself about it. It is completely normal to have those feelings, but it's about what you do with those feelings, as in everything. In the second chapter of Nehemiah, in chapter 
in verse 10, it says, when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard of it, they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. And you see, Sanballat and Tobiah, they are physical and biblical examples of the challenges that we will face from Satan. They represent the power and they represent the influence that we are coming up against in this world today. Because you see, Sanballat, he was the provincial governor or satrap for us history buffs of Samaria. And history tells us that the governor of Samaria was the one that had the power, that had the control of Jerusalem itself in the Persian order of government. But however, what we haven't talked about yet, what we didn't read for sake of time, was that Nehemiah had been made the governor of Jerusalem by Artaxerxes. That's in the book of Nehemiah. We haven't read it. That meant that Sanballat no longer had the power in Jerusalem. He did. He used to. But the king said, no, you don't have the power anymore. Nehemiah does. And Tobiah, likewise, he was the governor or satrap of Ammon, who through intermarrying and other relationships had gained significant influence inside of Jerusalem. However, again, Nehemiah had been made the governor of Jerusalem by the king. That meant that Tobiah no longer had the influence in Jerusalem. Can I tell you today also, saints of God, that the king of kings, the king of heaven and earth that made everything, has given us power and he has given us influence in this world. And can I tell you that Satan himself, he no longer has the power and he no longer has the influence in this city, in this county, in this rural area, in this state. He no longer has the power and the influence. Because can I remind you what Jesus told his disciples right before he ascended into heaven? He said, you will receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And you're going to be witnesses unto me into Judea, into Jerusalem, to Samaria, to the uttermost part of the earth. You're going to be witnesses. You're going to have influence. You're going to have the opportunity to share what I have done for you and my power and my might to the world. And it is going to change the world. We have the power and we have the influence because it's been given to us by the King. Yeah. Praise God. Clap your hands hands to the Lord. Praise God. And I know it looks like sometimes we're up against the denominational power and the denominational influence in our respective cities. There's stout religious tradition. I can't speak for Sparta, but I can speak for the city I live in and the church I go to in Highland. It is steeped in Catholicism and they're great people. Don't, don't get me wrong about that, but there is such a staunch oppressiveness of anything Protestant or anything outside of that tradition that anything gets shut, gets shut down by them. By the, if they don't agree with it, it's shut down. But can I just share a little bit of a testimony with you? We are getting ready to have for the seventh year in our city of about 10,000, we have what's called Rock-A-Block. And I don't, this isn't in my notes, but I just feel like sharing it. 
that we have it at the town square every year there in Highland, and it's grown significantly every year. And we're right now on pace to hit about the 10% mark of that city reached in one day, about 1,000 people. And I think that's a miracle. Yes. I sincerely think that's a miracle because we went up against opposition when we first started this thing. I wasn't around, but I've been told that by our pastor and other people that have been involved with it. There was, pa there was a lot of opposition from those in power in the city who also had ties to other powers in the city, if you know what I mean. But God granted us favor because, like the Bible says, he has given us power and he has given us influence in our cities. So whatever you might be up against, whatever you think is too big for God to do for this church, for our organization, for the church of the living God as a whole, just remember, he has given us the power and he has given us the influence and he is giving us the resources to advance his kingdom. Hallelujah. Praise God. Praise God. Sanballat and Tobiah, they were not about to go down without a fight. Nobody would if they've just lost what's been theirs for so long. They're not going to go down without a fight. The Bible says that Nehemiah, he encouraged the people of Jerusalem and told them that they should rebuild the wall, which was an ordained work by God. Nehemiah goes on to say in chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, he says, and I told them, of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. So they said, let us rise up and build. Then they set their hands to this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab, just another provincial governor, heard of it, they laughed at us, and they despised us, and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Will you rebel against the king. Nehemiah has everyone on board. And for those of us that have any type of leadership responsibilities, that is hard enough, getting everybody on board. The people are on board, and they're excited and ready to do this work. They begin the work of rebuilding the wall. And as always happens, there is always an enemy there that mocks them for what they are doing. Sanballat and the rest of them, they laugh at the Israelites for what they are doing, and then they even begin to step it up a notch. They go to the psychological warfare. Sanballat and the rest of the governors that are there trying to stop this work, they, they, they'd say this, will you rebel against the king? And isn't that just like Satan? I mean, it really is. He will tell you that what you're doing for God, it's futile. And he will mock you for it. You'll hear those lies in your head. And then he will begin to talk to you and question your reason for what you're doing. If it's not enough that he mocks you and makes you question it, he'll even begin to question it for you. Well, are you doing this for your own glory? Because that's essentially what Sanballat was getting at. That's what he was prodding with. Will you rebel against the king? I know you say you're doing this for God, but are you trying to set up your own kingdom? That's what he's getting at. And the enemy will ask you that very question. When you know that God has given you a work to do in your life, and you were going at it full bore, 
And God is blessing the work of your hands, just like he was the Israelites. The devil will question you. Well, are you sure you're doing this for God? I know you're telling everybody you're doing this for God, but are you sure that you're not building up your own kingdom? But I tell you, that is a lie from the enemy. Because God has given us this work to do. He has given us the resources to complete it. And we will complete it through him because it is his work. We are building his kingdom. We're not building our own. And this was Nehemiah's answer to them in verse 20. He says, so I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven himself is going to prosper us. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. And this is the best part. But you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. So when the enemy is coming at us, trying to discourage us from doing the work of God, you need to stand firm and just remind them of the promise, just like Nehemiah did to his enemies. God will prosper me. God will prosper us. He will prosper this church. And since this is the case, we will arise and we will go and we will do this work for his kingdom. And finally, Satan Don't forget this part. You have no heritage. You have no right. And this says memorial, but that translated means claim. You have no right. You have no privilege. And you have no claim to this city, Satan. So what in the world are you even doing here? Hallelujah. The next time the devil tries to stop you and question what you're doing, you need to remind him you don't have the power here anymore. So what are you doing here? And rebuke him in Jesus' name, and he will flee from you. Praise God. For the next few chapters in Nehemiah, we see this back and forth game between Nehemiah and his enemies. And in chapter 4, it says that the enemies eventually conspired to fight against Nehemiah. It's come to this point. They started with just trying to discourage it at the beginning, and then they moved to the psychological warfare, warfare, excuse me. And now it's even come to actual warfare. These guys really wanted to stop this work. It's come up to bloodshed. And so Nia draws up defense plans, and he immediately puts them into action. In chapter 4 and verse 14, it says, And I looked and arose and said to the nobles, to the leaders, and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Do not be afraid of Sanballat and the rest of his cronies. Remember the Lord. Remember who we are doing this for. Great and awesome. And fight for your brethren your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. Because it's worth the fight to fight for our families, to fight for our cities, to fight for ourselves. It's worth it to fight for it. And verse 17 says, Those who built on the wall and those who carried burdens loaded themselves so that with one hand they worked at construction and with the other hand they held a weapon. And Nehemiah showed that he was not only going to keep building, he was not going to stop working, but that he was going to keep building and fight at the same time. Because he wasn't going to stop building in order to fight, but he was going to keep building and fight at the same time. He knew that time was of the essence, and he was going to capitalize on every minute that he had. Because every minute that he laid down the tools of work, the wall remained unfinished. And that was the goal, to stop the wall from being built. So we must likewise do the same thing. 
that when the enemy comes at us, we must keep working for the Lord and fight him with the weapons that we have been given by Jesus Christ. And furthermore, let him fight for us because he will. And the book of Nehemiah culminates with the finishing of the wall in an astounding 52 days, as we've mentioned already. And this wasn't a play game wall. I know we might be able to throw something together in 52 days, but archaeologists have dug at the site of Nehemiah's wall and it has been found in most places to be some nine feet thick. I maintain to you that is a miracle from heaven that they got this wall done in 52 days for it to be nine feet thick in that time without modern technology. But what was it? that kept Nehemiah going during those 52 days because all the verses that we've just read to this point have been in that 52-day span. And there was a lot going on. So what was it that kept him during those 52 days? How did he overcome all of the adversity that he faced? The answer is found in chapter 8 in verse 10. When he tells the people, because he's on the other side of it now, The wall's been completed. The work is over. He tells the people that the joy of the Lord is their strength. Nehemiah, in fact, I tell you, had the joy of the Lord. And there is no other way that we can accomplish what God has told us to do, what he's given us a responsibility to do without having the joy of the Lord. Because quite simply, when you have no joy... You don't have any strength. It's simple as that. I remember a time in my life where work was very hectic and familial obligations, you know, having two children, two very young children, it, it can get overwhelming at some point, brother and sister Graham, <laughs> having multiple little ones in the house, as you guys know for sure. And it just gets to the point where you feel like you're spinning your wheels, right? We're all, am I the only one that's ever felt that way? There, there, sister, thank you in the back there. You just feel like you're spinning your wheels, like you're not going anywhere. You're not doing anything wrong. Still going to church, still doing what you know to do, what you should do. But just didn't feel like I was going anywhere. Didn't, didn't feel like I was making progress in any part of my life, whether that be with my job and providing for my family or even for the kingdom of God, I just felt so stagnated. Like I didn't have any energy to pursue after anything, but I was there doing what I knew I needed to do. And I remember I was in prayer one night and I was finally tired of it. And I, I was searching my heart. You know, I was praying earnestly. I said, God, if there's something I'm not aware of, I want you to take it out of me. You know, if there's something buried in my heart that I'm not aware of that's causing me to feel this way, I want it gone because I know this is not right. This is not how a Christian that is filled with the Holy Ghost is supposed to feel. I seriously felt like I did not have any joy in my life. And the, the, what keyed me to, to this and I don't think I even told my wife this at the time, but one of my coworkers said, you got something on your mind? I said, no. Why? He said, you just look like you're upset. You don't seem as happy. 
man, that hit me like a freight train when he said that to me. Somebody that's never, as far as I know, been in the house of God, never heard this message, probably doesn't even know what the Holy Ghost is, tells me something's not right with you. Ooh, man, that, that got me really good. So I'm seeking God in prayer. And finally, I found it, and it was the grace of God, because I'm not smart enough to figure this out. I thought, where is my joy? Where's the joy of the Lord in my life? Where is it? I can't find it anywhere. And I then began to pray. I said, God, I want my joy back. God, I want your joy in my life. And it was no sooner that I had prayed those words that I felt this warmth come over me and like the presence of God wrapping its arms around me. And I felt this happiness bubble up inside of me that I had not felt in quite a long time, but it was familiar. And I began to feel the joy of the Lord in my life. And I felt strength that I had not felt in some time. I felt my countenance change all over me. And I thought, there it is. That's what I had lost. I needed the joy of the Lord in my life as we can stand together and the musicians come. So I tell you that the next time that you're feeling tired, the next time that you feel like you don't have any strength to go on, just ask yourself this one question. Do I feel the joy? Do you feel the joy this morning? Do you feel the joy of the Lord bubbling inside your soul right now? Because you see, the Bible commands us to make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Yes. Well, another bombshell right now. You got to have joy to make a joyful noise to the Lord. You just do. You got to have joy to make a joyful noise to the Lord. And you know, we even like to sing that old chorus that this joy that I have, the world didn't give it to me. The world didn't give it and the world can't take it away. And that is very true. I agree with that. But you see, what happens is that we allow the situations in our lives that we go through, life itself, we allow it to get us to a place of thinking that we have nothing to be joyful about. It's just another day of work. It's just another diaper to change. It's just another meal to prepare. It's just another day of church. It's life. That's what you get to thinking. But I ask you again, where is your joy? Because, you see, we I firmly believe that we can't lose our joy because it's a gift from God. The world can't take away what's a gift from God. They're without repentance. They can't be taken away. But we allow the weights of life to bury it down in our hearts to where we can't find it. We can't tap into that joy. We can't stir up that gift. And we get to the point where we think we have absolutely nothing to be joyful about. But I tell you, and I know I'm in a room full of them that have been saved from the multitude of sins that we were wallowing in. And if God has delivered us from things that we wouldn't want mentioned in this microphone for all to hear, and if God has healed your body, if God has given you a prophetic word in your life, I tell you right now, you better have the joy of the Lord because you've got something to be joyful about. 
We ought to be able to sing that joyful noise with our head held high because we have got the promise of the Father living inside of us. We should have the joy of the Lord in our lives because He is the source of our joy, not, mo not money, not status, not success, not houses, not cars, not phones, not tablets, not nice suits, not anything. He is the source of our strength. He is the source of our song because He is the source of our joy. Peter describes it as joy unspeakable and absolutely full of glory. And I remember when I was a child when my mother leading worship service would say, let's turn to page 33 and sing joy unspeakable. I remember thinking, why are we singing about it if it's unspeakable? It's something we can't even talk about. And I but now, as I've grown older and just maybe a little more mature, I realize that my five-year-old theology was just a little messed up. <laughs> because, you see, it's joy unspeakable because it absolutely cannot be explained. How many times have you found yourself in a bad situation and you just can't help but feel at ease? You just can't help but feel the peace of God over you and a smile on your face. You can't, you can't, it's joy unspeakable. It cannot be explained. You see, the world is going to look at you and say that were they in the situation that you and I would find ourselves in, whatever it is right now, they would have already thrown in the towel. They would have already walked away from this church thing, this Christian thing, this Jesus thing, this apostolic thing. They would have already given up because what has this gotten me? It's gotten me headache. But we know that's not the truth. They would have already walked away from it. They would have already given up on following after Jesus. How can you keep that smile on your face in the middle of that cancer diagnosis, they might ask somebody. How do you keep dancing in the front of the church when all hell seems to be breaking loose in your life? And you can't explain it. You just say, friend, I can't even tell you the half of it. I just feel this overwhelming sense of calm in my life. I feel the joy of the Lord in my life. I know you don't understand it, neighbor. I know it doesn't make sense to you, friend. The prognosis that the doctor gave me, it looked like a death sentence. And you know what? It might be a death sentence. Whatever you're facing, it might not end well. That's life. That happens. It's just the way it is. But God said to trust him. So I'm going to do that. I can't explain it to you. You don't get it. But I just feel this overwhelming sense of calm inside of me. No matter what I face, no matter what I'm doing, I just feel the joy of the Lord. And because of that, I feel like following him wherever he may lead me.